Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast, where we delve into the treasure trove of our fund manager performance data and bring you only the brightest, shiniest nuggets of information to delight you. My name's Richard Lander and joining me as usual are co-host Angus Foote and our esteemed data wranglers Nisha Long and fresh back from his tour of Europe, Frank Talbot. You have a good trip, Frank? Yeah, it was great. I feel uh, rejuvenated. Splendid. Well, uh, we'll be coming to you in a minute, Frank, for a talk about some US equity managers. But first, Nisha is, and uh, we're going to go to you. And your theme this week is themes, isn't it? It is, yeah. So I want to highlight two thematic managers who've had improved their performance um, in the latest cuts of the ratings. So the first manager is Mark Hargraves of AXA Investment Managers. And he's gone up from a A rating to a double A rating this month on the back of improved risk-adjusted performance over the past three years. Now, he manages the AXA Framlington European Fund and the AXA Framlington Evolving Trends Fund. And the Evolving Trends Fund is driven by sector specialists and trends, which suits Hargraves down to the ground. And I say that because he is a jack of all trades. He's been with AXA since 2009, and he's managed the AXA Health Fund, Global Thematics, Equity Income, Longevity, so quite a few um, areas. So within his Evolving Trends Fund, he's used some of these themes across this, um, and the fund's registered for sale across Europe. And he's done well out of the likes of Alibaba, Dexcom, PayPal, PayPal sorry, um, all in his top holdings. And with this, he's playing the tech and healthcare theme of late, as well as consumer discretionary, which has outshone staples, consumer staples, since the market recovery uh, rebound since uh, March the 19th. So he lost 15% in Q1 of this year. Um, it is actually similar to the losses he had in Q4 of 2018, when we have the previous market meltdown. But he's clawed back some of the... Um, some of that returns from Q1 this year, and he's made 24%, um, which is, you know, quite a comeback. And over the last three years, performance has been great, so over the longer term, 44% to the end of June. So I think that he's definitely one to watch in this area. Now, the second manager I want to man mention is Giles Money of, um, I hope I said that right, um, Bank Safra Saracen. Now, he's gone up from a double A rating to a triple A rating this month. And he manages the JSS Sustainable Equity Global Thematic Fund. Now, the fund's name actually changed in December 2019 to include the words sustainable and thematic. It was just known as the Global Equity Fund before that. And while the company says it's to reflect the investment strategy covering all ESG factors, um, and they've always done it this way. And I have to say, I think I believe them in this one because... Perhaps some investors just wanted to go into this fund because they believe that it will only be an ESG strategy if it's got ESG or some kind of ESG reference in the name of the fund. But this one, I would say that they've always been integrating ESG factors. And I say that because they do have the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, eBay, Facebook, but also ASOS. Now, with ASOS, they recently removed Boohoo, which has been under scrutiny. For, um, so their products, Boohoo's products, ASOS removed from their websites after investigation did find, you know, workers 
working in unsafe conditions. So on this part, they've got the S covered in ESG in this strategy. And also money has also managed in the past a new power fund and new energy funds. So I can also see his e-credentials, you know, within this fund. And governance, I think he's always had that throughout his picks, um, just sort of watching on that. And this is reflected in his returns. Over the last three years, he's returned 38%. Um, and the fact that he has risen to the top accolade of a AAA rating just shows that, you know, he has been able to weather the storm a bit during this crisis period. Okay. Angus, are your selectors tuning into themes? And do they want... These are sort of multi-themes that the team they managers... Are. They are. I think it's a really interesting space, actually. And the whole idea of themes and what makes a theme is a uh, is a interesting talking point talking to the uh, over the last few weeks to cios as well as big fund selectors a lot of them are saying that themes are going to come to the fore it doesn't necessarily mean thematic funds though but the whole idea of the theme as the as the investment idea is something that's moving up people's agendas i think because partly because there's this idea that it's no longer enough just to back an asset class because you're going to get such a dispersion of returns between winners and losers, uh, whether, whether amongst companies or within an asset class, that, that actually you have to pick the, the companies or the, or the regions or the countries that are going to win uh, on the theme. And for example, digitalization. So there's a real, there's a real feeling now that companies successfully embrace digitalization, regardless of what sector they're in, will succeed. And those that don't, won't. So just saying I back consumer discretionaries or I back energy or whatever, whatever it may be, no longer works at all. Um, so all of which puts picking the individual companies or, or the individual instruments back into, back into focus feeds this idea that active managers are going to come out of this current situation in a better place. But you, you do have this thing where, I mean, the two funds Nisha refer to are sort of jack of all trade themes, if you like. And then you've got, you know, and the first themes were, I guess, started about 10 years ago with technology funds, maybe a bit longer ago than that. But now you have sub-themes, wind, power, digitalization, yeah. robots, AI. Absolutely. I mean, it's a good, good example, security. Okay, so we're hearing a lot about security at the moment because everybody's working virtually. Security becomes a massive issue for people working online. So, so that's a sub-theme, I guess. But I, I, I think you're right, Richard, but I think... Again, the link to sustainability in ESG is interesting because so much of this now is about badging and presentation, isn't it? You may have a good strategy. You choose to call it thematic or you choose to call it sustainable. Suddenly you're being assessed in a different way. You're in a different bracket. I mean, the other part of sustainability, of course, is that everybody seems to agree that, you know, in future, all investing will have to be sustainable investing. So just calling yourself sustainable mm. doesn't really tick any boxes for anybody anymore. Right. Sorry, Frank. It gets, it, gets, it, gets, it gets you notice in this situation, you know, as Nisha said, they renamed the fund so that people were more aware of it. You've got to be explicit about what your agenda is. Sure, but I don't think fund selectors are going to buy a fund uh, because it's called thematic and say, yes, this, this plays a theme. They want to know what theme are you playing? Just as if you run, when you move on to talking about US equity strategies, if you're running a US equity strategy, the analysts want to know what themes are you playing? They don't just want to know, are you big in car makers? Are you underweight banks or whatever it used to be, you know, in previous, in previous ages, they want to know, okay, what are the ideas and the themes that you're playing and how, 
how those developed in the portfolio. And do they want these really narrow themes like we just discussed, cybersecurity, power, wind? Yeah, well, there's, when you talk to fund selectors, you get split opinions on this. Some see it as marketing, some really like these ideas. I mean, the, 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 end, the end product of all of this, if you're a fund selector, somebody is actually selling those funds that you select in the end to end clients. And those relationship managers whose job it is to get those funds out there to the clients, they need a story to tell. And any story that has topicality or has some sort of macro resonance is easier to tell than, uh, than, you know, than not. So I think, uh, I think if you asked people, do they favor theme funds or not, you would probably get a mixture of answers, but they do. These funds are doing very, very well in terms of assets. A lot of them, they are, you know, proving popular. Well, it'll be a theme for the future. Sue me now if you want for a pun like that. <laughs> Frank, US, because we've just ticked over the 100 days to the election mark this week. So uh, I don't think anyone, people might have their views about uh, Biden's commanding lead, but I'm not sure that they know really what it means, should he win. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not actually going to talk about about the election. It seems like uh, sort of an yeah. a second-rate event this year. I mean, think about previous uh, cycles. At the end, it would have been every news story on everything the U.S. election. But yeah, I'm going to talk about U.S. large-cap uh, equity growth funds. Uh, the U.S. has obviously been in the news a lot lately, uh, following the sharp rise in the number of new cases. It might seem foolhardy to want to invest now, but we've seen in many countries across the world there are businesses making good money. Uh, that are sort of seen as COVID proof. Um, it's, it's the hardest market in the world to outperform. Uh, it's also far and away the best equity market in terms of returns over the past decade and since the coronavirus outbreak of the major equity markets. There are still lots of investors looking to outperform and juice up those gains. Uh, so unfortunately, there, there are people doing this. I'm going to highlight, as always, two teams of managers who've uh, jumped to AAA this month. The first is Tom Slater and team from Bailey Gifford. Uh, they run, yeah, right. They run the group's uh, U.S. equity funds, uh, and they're available in all, all major fund markets. I'm sure that most listeners are aware that Bailey Gifford are on the right side of markets at the moment, and have been for a number of years. Um, almost everyone in their stable is handsomely outperforming. They've got 15 AAA-rated managers and 11 AA just to show for it, and that puts them in amongst the big players in asset management. They have much larger teams of managers and AUM. Uh, the quartet, uh, led by Slater, are the single, the, sorry, the top performing active managers worldwide in U.S. equities over a year to the end of June out of 1,500 names. It's very impressive. But they've returned 48% to their investors. Astonishing when you consider what's happened. Uh, and they just edge out my personal favorite U.S. equity manager, Fidelity Stephen Weimer, who's been ridiculously consistent, outperforming in every discrete three-year period of his 20-plus year career. Unfortunately, you can only buy him in the US, but if you can, go for it. I've digressed a bit. Massive fan of this guy. Uh, I could dedicate a whole show to that fandom. Um, but back on topic, Gavin Lumsden did a great interview with Tom Slater in May, and I recommend you listen to it. If this is a strategy you're interested in, even if you're not, it gives you insights into what is one of the best active management houses in the world at the moment. What are they doing? What are they doing right? Uh, in many ways, you've heard it all before. Big in tech, big in healthcare, has a maximum 10% in Shopify, the Canadian online retailer that's up 
200 plus percent yeah. over the past 12 months. Someone just raised their target on Shopify today. So, and the, now where did I read a brilliant piece about it recently, not in a mainstream magazine. And it's one of those things, you know, enabling uh, all sorts of retailers to, to, to go online. And they told the story of a craft beer company that just thought about packing it all in after COVID and then put everything on Shopify, their sales are now booming. And it, it sort of seems like software as a service that anyone could do. But in fact, the stuff is incredibly complex. Got an interesting German found, founder based in Canada. He's going to get a lot of those uh, US visa applicants who will be refused. And he's saying, to, you know, the, the tech guys from India and other come to come to Canada and work for me. So I think it's got a, a lot of future. Yeah, that kind of marketplace yeah. uh, ideology is working really well. Um, Bailey Gifford, also a massive fan of Tesla, uh, holding it for a long time. It's, it's 8% of the fund. In fact, Bailey Gifford as a whole is second only to Musk in terms of ownership. Owns 7% of Tesla to Musk's 15. Uh, lucky them, stocks up more than 550% over the past 12 months to yesterday. Unbelievable. Uh, the rest of the stocks you want are in there as well. Amazon, Netflix. Uh, obviously, yeah. the high conviction growth strategy paid off massively. Uh, but when you hear the team speak, you know, I feel that they, sat, they come across as very considered investors, despite generating such astonishing returns. You know, they're not getting ahead of themselves. Uh, for such a growth-focused fund, the turnover is just 18%, and that shows that they're, they're buy and hold. Things change quite quickly in growth companies. Um, so I'm sure you're aware of them, but back up to AAA this month. Very, very impressive fund. Uh, the next is uh, Lord Abbott's US equity team, uh, run by Thomas O'Halloran, O'Halloran, sorry, Thomas, uh, and Matthew DeKiko, uh, along with AA-rated uh, Vernon Bice. They run a raft of US equity funds, both large and small, but it's the large cap that I want to focus on today. Uh, another great year. They rank 12th of 1,500 managers in the peer group, gains of 33% across USITs and US mutual funds. Um, it's certainly a much less high conviction offering than Bailey's. Uh, you've got 80 stocks in the portfolio compared with 30 or so uh, former. Um, so not as aggressive, which, which makes the performance even more impressive in many ways. They picked up Zoom in March, so we're early-ish to the party, but it's only just broken into the top 10 at 2%. So they took a, a fairly small position at the start. Uh, has 44% 44, 44 in tech stocks, which is actually broadly in line with the Russell 1000 gross allocation. So you know, not massively overweight tech. Uh, has been underweight traditional cyclical sectors for a number of years on concerns about the trade war. Instead, they position themselves towards innovative growth stocks, which I guess is probably a theme coming back to the earlier point, uh, that they believe a better place to weather economic cycles. And obviously, they've been proved right lately. When the crisis first hit, they sold uh, restaurants, theme parks, financials, anything they felt was going to be affected. They were changing something like 3% of the fund per day from the end of March on the belief that we were starting the next bull market, not the Armageddon scenario that they pr pr priced in. They right. um, bought some small caps, uh, positioning towards the improving economic outlook. And it, it's clearly worse. You know, they've, they've done well, definitely worth a look if you want a more diversified large cap US growth fund. Cool. Uh, Angus, anyone worried outside of the States by the, you know, the dollars on a downward trend? The world is flush with dollars. Yeah. I've heard a bit of, there's been a bit of argument amongst senior investors about the dollar, you know, weaker, stronger, which way should it be? Uh, but that, uh, I 
that's you get very bogged down in that kind of stuff. Um, one thing that uh, is interesting, though, and maybe this is maybe this is a maybe this is an underhand way of getting into the election. I don't know, but um, one of the things we've been hearing quite a bit about is the trade war and how that might impact on, I guess, what you call re-onshoring of U.S. business in the sense that. I mean, Nisha and I were talking about um, we were talking about Malaysian glove makers. Nisha last week, do you remember? Yeah. Uh, PPE and how in the US there has been a political there's political noise around you have to buy this stuff in the US from US manufacturers, which obviously is more expensive. Uh, so the uh, I guess the outcome of the election could affect that if you are if you're backing companies that are in the US and stand to benefit from that buy American push that seems to be going on at the moment. I don't know, Frank, does that resonate at all with the portfolios you're looking at? Uh, obviously, they're all American companies, uh, mm. but um, a lot of the time... No, but I mean, sorry, I've explained that badly. What I meant was in the sense that if, if there is a political drive to not use Chinese, Asian suppliers for things that can be bought in, the, in America, then that favours American companies that maybe wouldn't be competitive purely on a price basis. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends how depends how nationalistic the Americans are. No comment on how nationalistic they are. Obviously, very. Um, but you've got a situation. Do do you know if it's um, in technology, for instance? Obviously, that's the asset class doing so well. If um, you don't know where the components in your Samsung smartphone come from, you know, you don't know what country produced them. I'm thinking a story this week about how IBM has given up massive lead in its uh, computer processing chip lead to uh, TSMC in Taiwan. So you don't know if the chip is made by TSMC versus Intel. You know, you're probably not as, a, as aware of that. And um, I, th I think it's a long way of saying difficult to tell uh, mm. whether or not that actually be detrimental to the, the country if you're paying a higher high price for something, the, yeah. the economy that is in its recovery versus just going for the cheapest thing. I mean, it's the sort of anti-globalization argument. But also, is that will investors actually sacrifice returns because at the you know they're going to look at the bottom line of these companies, and is it really worth it? You know, spending that extra well ten percent of a portfolio on extra costs by going into America rather than you know in a emerging market country for your components or you know PPE gear. So I think there's there is a you know a fine balance to be made there as well. I don't think it is all about okay everything has to be in America. Because yeah. it has to be, you know, some kind of leeway to make everyone happy, really. Good. Well, we're straying dangerously into geopolitics and <laughs> globalisation and nationalism there. So probably a good point to wrap things up. So that is all for now. And thank you all for joining us and listening. Uh, we are taking a short summer break and we'll be back in September. In the meantime, uh, a fresh ratings radar newsletter will be winging its way to your inbox very soon. If you're not on the list, please email us at ratingsradar at citywire.co.uk and we'll make sure you are. So a fond summer farewell from Frank, Angus, Nisha and myself and we look forward to rejoining you all in September. Mm -hmm.